We live in a fantasy world now. Reality has been destroyed. This is the time that we really need to pay attention. The probabilities are overwhelmingly on gold's side. That is the best environment to see gold increase its value. Welcome to Palisades Gold Radio. I'm your host, Tom Bodrovics. Joining me today is Justin Hewn, founder and publisher of the Uranium Insider Newsletter. Justin, thanks for joining me today. How are you? Doing really well. Good to see you again, Tom. Absolutely. Good to see you too. And it's such an exciting time for this market. And I'd like to start by talking about, you know, we so many times look to history for a precedent and something to kind of predict markets and project forward to give us a guide to history, not necessarily repeating, but at least rhyming. And I think the interesting thing about this market is that really at this point, there is no precedent for the dynamics that are in play. Is that right? Yes, that is absolutely correct, um, especially when it comes to the physical uranium market. Um, you know, there's always things that rhyme within the equities markets, but with the physical uranium market, there's a number of historical anomalies. And a lot of that has to do with the pretty utter lack of secondary supplies in this in this existing market. So secondary supplies for the entire history of, of the nuclear industry and the uranium market have been prevalent and in some in some cases very, very abundant in the 90s into the early 2000s, hundreds of millions of pounds into the market from Russia, megatons and megawatts, downblending nuclear warheads, 20 million pounds a year for 20 years, enrichment underfeeding starting in the mid 2000s when it went to gas centrifuge enrichment that, you know, at its peak was close to 30 million pounds a year coming from enrichment underfeeding that now is absolutely gone in the West and small amount coming from Russia, staying in Russia. <clears throat> so there's a, this secondary supply buffer that's been sort of a, uh, it's been a buffer for the market, historically speaking, pretty much forever is mostly not there right now. And so now we have an exacerbated supply deficit year over year um, going out at least for the next, I mean, I want to say at least three years, but realistically, we're probably talking about five plus years until some uh, multiple very large projects come online. Mm. That's primarily Kazana problems, Budenovskoy 6 and 7 deposit, and uh, you know, Next Gen's Arrow, Phoenix's Denison, and Global Atomics DOSA. When all of those are up and running, we start to approach close to a balanced market for a snapshot point in time, but then you have the declining assets that are existing in production right now, Cigar Lake, eventually mid-2030s, MacArthur River. Um, a lot of the Kazakhstani deposits are are in slow decline. So we have decline rates of existing production kind of hitting right around the time where we're expecting these new large projects to come online. So uh, it's hard to say exactly where this is going to go, but we're already entering into a situation where we have multiple buyers in the market, uh, you know, kind of scrambling over a small number of pounds. And we're going to see that for a number of years going ahead. So um, higher, we're going higher, where we're headed, nobody really knows. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a couple points that we're going to get to in what you just said. But I think for those that aren't necessarily overly familiar with this market, and even for those that are, you had a, an inflation adjusted chart for the price of uranium, which I think is really instructive to kind of look at as well, to really show where we are at this point versus, you know, even the last cycle, right? Sure. Yeah. And this is this is not our chart. I think I retweeted this, but um, I can bring it up and give credit to uh, Nuclear Dorito on Twitter. 
Uh, so this is showing an inflation-adjusted chart where we're at right now, one hundred four dollars a pound. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the inflation-adjusted peak, the previous market was two hundred dollars a pound, and this is something I think is really really important to understand about this market versus the previous market, which is the pace at which the price spiked and fell. So the price of uranium went from 80, 90 bucks a pound up to 134 in 2007 and back down to 75 in about six or seven months. It happened extremely quickly because it was primarily a financially driven spike. This was a spike that was driven by hedge funds primarily. Of course, there were traders and utilities that were buying both in the spot market and high prices in the term market um, right around that time as well. So it's not like it was only financially driven, but the big spike was not a lot of pounds traded driven by hedge funds. And then, of course, it coincided with the GFC when the market started to turn and crash. Uh, The hedge funds that were holding pounds sold them into the market and down we came. So it was this quick little moment in time where the price was going up uh, $5 a week, uh, sometimes $10 a week, and it just went over and over and over, spiked and crashed. The big difference here is that this move in the price is not being primarily driven by financial players. Mm -hmm. Yes, financial players are in this market. Um, We have multiple hedge funds that have uh, are holding a decent amount of uranium. My understanding is much of this uranium that is held by individual funds is actually committed. These are pounds committed to deliver to utilities. They're acting as carry traders, essentially. So uh, there's that, but then there's also Yellow Cake and Sprott Physical Uranium Trust. And they're there but they're not really the bulk of the volume that's that's driving this move. So everybody is in the market right now. Uh, the Chinese are in the market. The Russians are in the market. The French are in the market. Um, the United States and Canadian producers uh, have been in the market. Utilities are in the market. Traders are in the market. Hedge funds are in the market. Everybody's in the market. The only sellers right now in the spot market primarily are a few traders that have consistent month-over-month offtakes from, from producers. Mm-hmm. And to, to give a little detail on that, Typically, a monthly offtake of of, uh, primary production coming from an existing producer will be priced at the month end price, and then the forward month offtake will be priced at the previous month's month's month end print. So when we're in an uptrend, as we clearly are now, for example, the month end print in December was, what, $90 a pound? Then you had the traders that were getting the uranium from their various players, whether that's uh, BHP or Navoy in Uzbekistan, whoever it might be. Those pounds get sold to the market. They can profit five or 10 bucks a pound, rinse and repeat. And that's the main liquidity in the spot market. Everybody else is buying or holding. Mm-hmm. So yes, to put this into context with this particular chart, we have a ways to go just to get to where the previous market's peak was on an inflation adjusted basis. So while $104 a pound feels like it's a very high price of uranium, it's not. And I can also tell you the, the industry isn't panicking here. So the utilities... This price move has their attention. It's affecting their bottom line when they take uranium deliveries from former contracts to the extent that those contracts are at least partially referenced to the market. They've got to pay up. They've got to pay up that 104 bucks a pound for that partially market reference portion of that contract. So this price move has their attention, but they're not in panic mode. Uh, this is not a price that's inhibitive to anything in the industry. And, uh, and we expect it to go much, much higher. Mm-hmm. How high? It's not going to make sense. And the reason I say that is because we're very close to reaching a price where you could argue that will incentivize pretty much every project in the world, right? Maybe another $5, 10 $15 a pound. Pretty much everybody, if it stayed there, would start to make 
plans and efforts to move towards production. As um, guidance but, is, you know, concurrently starting to reflect, right? Exactly. Yeah, the gears are starting to turn. We're starting to hear projects. Yeah, you know, some of the Namibian projects are going to be getting final investment decisions this year. Uh, the U.S. ISR projects, UR Energy, um, uh, Encore Energy energy fuels, UEC, they're all moving towards production or actually producing, Encore's actually producing, Boss's Honeymoon, they're in, into production as well. Um, so yeah, the gears are starting to turn. The problem is we have the price, we have sufficient capital, what we don't have is time. There's also constraints with skilled labor and supply chains that are making things more difficult even for existing producers, let alone the developers. But it's just going to take time for these mm -hmm. projects to get into production. Um, and I think we're talking years. For example, NextGen is saying they'll be producing in 2027. If you ask anybody in the industry, they will not believe that. Um, that's very, very optimistic to build the largest uranium mine ever conceived um, in three years. So I think that, and mill, I think that that's highly unlikely, but that will be a mine someday. But it's just going to take time. And that one mine itself is not the savior of the market, even though it's very, very high production for the first five years of that mine. It's just going to take time, Tom. It's it's and price is not going to the price is going to make things easier for the companies or more incentivized to move towards production. The Kazakhs, for example, have every incentive to get that. Uh, production up right now. Um, they're making money hand over fist at these prices. Um, they obviously, I think that they need to say that they're moving towards 100% of their subsoil use agreements. And as soon as they say they're not going to hit them, boom, there goes the price again, and they benefit enormously. So I'm not saying that was a coordinated uh, move, but they just can't get it done uh, on time and on budget, just like anybody else. So if you have the largest producer in the world, who's making uh, hundreds of millions, if not billions in profits at these prices, uh, they can't get production online fast. Nobody can. And that's a, a really important point because they've been producing this whole time. Their supply chains are already in place. There's all of these different pieces of the puzzle that new mines and new mills need to be able to you know, produce, refine, get it out of the ground. There's so many pieces to this puzzle, yet they're even struggling. So one thing I wanted to, let's say, go over before we continue here is what their outlines were for production guidance here going into this next year and what you see as their, you know, their ability to actually meet those goals. And we can kind of jump off all of the different problems within that as well. Sure. So they had guided as as recently as September of last year mm -hmm. that they were going to produce um, up to twenty five and a half thousand tons of uranium for twenty twenty four, and shooting for a hundred percent of their subsoil use agreements, which would be thirty and a half to thirty one and a half thousand tons of uranium in twenty twenty five. A huge jump over what they produced last year, which was just over 21,000 tons. So almost a 50%, 45% jump from 2023 to 2025. Huge, um, which would require an incredible effort, a lot of capital, huge increases in CapEx in their well field development. 
major increase in the uh, sulfuric acid imports, which sounds like that's the primary reason that they're struggling to improve their production at the moment is availability of sulfuric acid. They are building out another sulfuric acid plant. They have two in country right now that produce, I think it's 680,000 tons of acid. They use about 2.2 million uh, tons per year currently. This next plant is going to produce 800,000 tons. So they'll have what close to 1.5 million tons in country production when that's online, mm -hmm. which they say is 2026. That's a very accelerated time frame to build a sulfuric acid of that. They just got their license to build this thing last month. So, um, but let's just give them the benefit of the doubt. 2026, they've got an influx of acid. They can uh, hit the ground running, acidify. Uh, primarily this new Budenovskoy 6 and 7 deposit, a very, very large deposit that's a joint venture with Russia. If they do that in 2026, that means uh, 2027, 2028 is where we'll see a big jump in production from them. So that's three, four years out, and that's if everything goes smoothly. Will they be able to import most, more sulfuric acid in the meantime? Possibly. Uh, it really depends on overall market availability. My understanding is that the primary usage of that is for fertilization. And uh, there's policy in country in Kazakhstan, the agriculture industry gets priority with the available sulfuric acid because people need to eat. So that's the situation there. Now they did revise that guidance down for 2024 from 25 and a half thousand tons to, let me pull it up in the background here, uh, 21 to 22 and a half thousand tons, which is a small jump over production for 2023. Um, and we haven't seen that increase in CapEx yet. We'll see their financials on March 15th. And if we see a jump in CapEx in Q4, maybe we can expect them to get close to these targets for this year. But it's just not a savior to the market, especially to uncovered utilities, because the big, the big production increase, like I mentioned, is from this joint venture with Russia, this particular mine that's already seeing uh, delays in construction. The the all of the production from this new deposit, all of it on a hundred percent basis, Kazakhstan uh, share and Russia share, all of that is going to Russia for the first five years of production. Mm -hmm. So we're going to have to see more deposits developed in in Kazakhstan. We're going to have to see an increase in sulfuric acid usage to increase production out of their existing deposits, which are in slow decline. Uh, it's just not easy. It's not easy for them. And we're going to have to see a lot more sulfuric acid usage to increase production out of declining deposits, let alone build out these new very large projects. Um, so, yeah, I, the West is still still voluntarily avoiding new business with Russia. They're not avoiding business with Kazakhstan. They just don't have a lot of capacity to sell from Kazakhstan uh, and their joint venture partners there. So it's a very tight midterm in the in the term market. The next three to five years, most of that capacity is already sold. There's still a lot of buying that utilities have to do. I don't know where it's going to come from, or what it's going to do to the price, but it's a very very supply constrained environment. Mm -hmm. Justin, what's the lag time from when Kazakhstan has capex spent to a, a reflection in their production? First production from a well field uh, being developed in Kazakhstan is about six to eight months until you start to actually get the first yellow cake out of that well field. Mm -hmm. Peak production is 18 months um, and it declines immediately from that point. Mm -hmm. So they have to continuously drill to, to maintain a higher level of production. They have to just drill hand over fist over and over and over. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that's not only affecting Kazatomprom, but the industry as a whole is the lack of skilled labor as well, right? It seems like that can affect everything from operating the sulfuric acid plant to, you know, having 
drillers, mine operators, all of these different pieces that need to be filled by qualified and competent hands, right? Yeah, it's a major problem. It's, I mean, it's a big problem in most technical industries. Uh, there's just a shortage of tradespeople, generally speaking, and the young generation is not really interested in this at all. Uh, for whatever reason, they all want to be YouTubers. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, no, no, not throwing shade at you or myself, by the way. Um, no, it's it's a it's a problem, and I haven't heard as much of that in Kazakhstan specifically. But it's a problem in the United States. It's a problem in Canada. Um, I'm hearing there's a, a very limited amount of drillers available in in the United States. So the companies are sort of clamoring over the same few dozen people that actually have drill rigs and are available mm -hmm. and trying to secure them and trying to get them to commit long-term to their projects. Like they're the companies, the few companies in the United States that are hoping to produce a few million pounds a year in, in two or three years from now are clamoring over a tiny number of drillers. And the, you know, the oil, they have to compete with the oil industry as well. Oil and gas, the same, it's just, you know, it's it's the drill rig operators can operate in these different uh, different types of deposits. I'm also hearing that operators in Canada are, are struggling to secure skilled labor in certain aspects of their project. So this, this is going to be a big problem for developing uh, companies and developing projects for sure. It's already a problem for the existing producers that have um, all the money in the world to attract the, the, the skilled people globally, and they're having a, a hard time doing so. Mm -hmm. So you recently put together a list of what you called right tail risks affecting supply. So what do you mean by a right tail risk? It's a risk that if it pans out results in the the, the commodity moving higher. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, it's a it's a it's a a positive risk for the investment thesis. Essentially, um, I admit, yes, are there left tail risk? Of course, there's a there's left tail risk in a nuclear accident. Um, there's a left tail risk in let's say if China just all of a sudden stops developing new projects and said and announces that to the world we've built enough nuclear reactors just kidding about our goals if that happens that's a left tail risk of course you know those type of demand destruction events um, are probably the primary left tail risks there's probably a handful of other smaller ones but the bulk of the risks that are um potential in the near term or possibly imminent are right tail risks and and that's, you know, that's this legislation that's being presented to potentially ban Russian uranium imports into the United States. If that happens, um, that would be potentially problematic. If we saw Russia actually retaliate from that legislation passing and, and cut off exports, um, we also have kind of this pending situation that's not looking positive in terms of Russia collaborating with the West. Uh, having to do with the West seizing Russian assets, if that pans out in the way that some are predicting, that could also implicate Russian deliveries to Western entities. Um, gosh, there's plenty more. Uh, tell me what was on my list. I'm forgetting off the top of my head. Oh, that, that's all good, Justin. There's plenty of spots here. One thing I just wanted to go over is this ban on Russian uranium. So let's talk about that a little bit, just because I think that's you know, a good point to understand. So when was that legislation passed and what are the nuances of it in terms of waivers that utilities can obtain here? Sure. Um, it was passed by the House. If I recall cor correctly, this was late November. 
Um, it was attempted to be fast-tracked through the Senate. In order to be fast-tracked, it would need a 100% yes vote, and it was blocked by one senator, Senator Cruz uh, in Texas. He's still holding up the legislation, um, trying to garner some other elements into this bill that have nothing to do with actually banning Russian uranium. My understanding is that this, this ban has the support of major nuclear advocacy organizations in the United States, and multiple of the larger utilities who are well covered in terms of necessary uh, needing Russian imports. So the ones that are the ones that are covered from Russia are in support of banning it. The ones that are not covered are not in support of it. Mm -hmm. But um, it's still being held up in the Senate. If it passes, which I think that it will, I'm not sure when that I thought the vote was going to be last month. It just keeps getting kicked down the road. Um, and to be clear, this is not something the industry needs. It's not something an investment case needs. In fact, I'm I'm I think that it would be smart for the United States to move away from relying on uh, non-allied countries for such a crucial element for 20% of the grid here. Mm. But um, I actually am kind of hoping it doesn't happen because I don't think the industry needs a skyrocketing uranium price. And um, the passing of the legislation is going to have some effect on the market. If Russia actually does ban it as a retaliatory move, that'll have an enormous effect on the market. We'll see very large, very fast moves in the price if that happens. But the legislation does have waivers in it out to December 31st of 2027, where a utility, if they can show that they have been unable to source their enriched uranium needs outside of Russia, they can request a waiver from the Secretary of Energy. Um, uh, and they can potentially grant that waiver for them to consider continue to receive that material. Um, I'm not much of a geopolitical analyst, Tom, but the nuclear fuel consultancies like UXC, they continue to state that this is a risk with Russia potentially cutting off that material as a response to this legislation being passed. The Russian uranium entities such as uh, 10X that sells the enriched uranium to the United States, they have out, come out and publicly stated, we're not going to renege on our contracts and not send you this stuff. So the decree would have to come from you know Putin or up on high in Russia. That's possible. Either way, all of these things swimming around are just the risks to what a nuclear utility fuel buyer should feel, which is a secure sense of supply. And all of these things continue to impact. We've got this conflict in the Red Sea right now, which is impacting deliveries of uranium from Russia to the EU. Now they're not going through um, uh, through that through that pass. They're ha having to circle around Africa. It's taking a, a lot more time. It's costing a lot more money. All of these little things just, just add up and make security of supply very difficult and concerning. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's a really interesting point that you brought up earlier when we're looking at the inflation adjusted chart, that this was a financially driven you know, market spike. But I want to go back to that idea. How do these financial entities start affecting this market? We saw spot come in, you know, quite a few months ago and start buying pounds out of the spot market. Have they really acted like a, you know, almost a floor underneath the market at this point? And, you know, going forward, once this market starts to impress upon other players, does that end up having a type of flywheel effect like you and I have talked about before that spurs this market higher as well? 
I don't, I wouldn't say necessarily that they're currently putting a floor in the market right now. Um, the advent of this broad physical uranium trust certainly accelerated the recovery in the price of uranium. And it was interesting because during the two periods where they did a lot of buying, which was kind of the autumn of 2021, March, April of 2022, we did see the price spike up during that period of time, but it settled right back down. And what that showed you was that there was some liquidity in the market because when the buying was in high volume, the price responded, but it settled back down. And that in some ways, it was kind of like a, a micro example of what happened for about six to eight months in 2007 it was just buying was in higher volumes until we reached that spike territory the last 30 dollars a pound was not necessarily huge volumes but that was driven by uh largely by financial players so the effect that sprout is having now is essentially when we see the equities markets go risk on and the discount to their net asset value starts to shrink what we'll often see is traders in the physical uranium market actually front run Sprott and start accumulating some pounds, believing that they will be able to sell it back to them a few dollars higher in the following week or two. So that's that's what we're seeing is that the actual equities markets, in some cases, because of the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust, are uh, you know they're linked to the physical uranium market now. So the physical market is keeping an eye on the equities markets. And that's not necessarily historically been the case. Mm -hmm. And that's because the market is so tight that any buying Sprott is going to do, or, or any other financial entity for that matter, or anybody is going to move the price. Um, and that's basically where we're at night, right now. In some cases, when we have off-takes, traders with off-takes selling a few hundred thousand pounds a month into the spot market, we can see that volume trade without a huge move in the price. Anything beyond that, and we start to see it move. So they're not necessarily a floor, but the market, the physical market, the traders, the utilities, they're aware of the financial entities and they're aware of the effect that they can have. But I think, in my opinion, the, the heavy lifting's already been done by Sprott. I don't think that uh, financial buying is really something we even need to depend upon at all going forward for the movement of the price to continue to go higher. Well, you know, I think that's a very profound point to understand is that we don't need nor want a spiky price like like we saw last time. We want these utilities to be able to project forward and see that they are safe to be able to produce pounds you know, bring these mines into production for utilities to be able to get safe, reliable supply, as you said. 100%. Yeah, the spikes are not healthy for the industry. You know, the previous spike, you know, very, very few players locked in those prices for the long term. Um, I, I had heard over the years that there's a couple of utilities that signed long-term contracts over $100 in 2007, and they never lived it down. Um, so the industry remembers that moment which would translate what to $150, $160 right now, um, which we're headed there. Um, but yeah, sustained higher prices is necessary. So it's not something that utilities should, uh, should be fighting against because it is absolutely necessary for the industry to recover and be able to produce sufficient volumes to actually sustain the nuclear industry going out into the next decade. So it's 100% necessary. The other thing I wanted to mention was that... Um, the 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 spike falling in 07, like I said, it coincided to some extent with the GFC and everything crashing. But really what it was, was motivated selling. Mm 
that's really what, what caused the price to fall. Motivated buying moves it up, motivated selling moves it down. So these traders, when you saw the price spike to 106 and fell back to $100 at the end of last month, um, that was motivated selling. It was a few hundred thousand pounds, but it moved the price down a couple of dollars, right? Because a seller wanted to get rid of some pounds. They still profited over $10 a pound from the pounds they got from the previous month's offtake. So it was brilliant for them. Um, but the motivated selling is what is going to cause the price to at least stall out, if not fall. And what we're seeing, Tom, generally speaking, is the exact opposite of that. There's been plenty of speculation as we've moved up in price over the years, and we've gone from 35 to 40 to 45 to 50, and it stuck around between 40 and 50 for about a year. Um, during all of that time, the speculation was still, okay, we're going to get up to this incentive price, you know, $65, $75 a pound. All of a sudden, we're going to see some new production start to come into the market. We're going to see some inventory start to filter in. The high prices are going to shake out some pounds. And by the way, I do think that will happen at some point, but we have to continuously look at the evidence. And so far, Mike Alkin's been 100% spot on, which is as the price rises, liquidity will dry up. People will hold on to their pounds more tightly. It's 100% true. It's exactly what's happening. And we don't know at what price we will see motivated sellers of inventory coming into the market. That is the only flex here, Tom, because production is going to lag. And we're not going to see liquid amounts of production being sold into the spot market anytime soon. So who is holding inventory and wants to sell it? Um, so far, it's been nobody. <laughs> but will that come in at 150 or 200? Probably we'll see some pounds start to shake into the market. The good news for us as investors in the space is that the natural demand from the industry is going to remain high. It can, the demand side continues to de-risk almost on a daily basis. Just this morning, we heard that Taiwan is considering doing a 180 and life extending their last reactor. Um, they they have been phasing out nuclear, been, been pounding the table on a nuclear phase out for years. Nobody was expecting them to turn. Um, we're waiting for final final decision in Belgium to extend the last two reactors there that are operated by by Engie. They're going to have to come into the market if if they those reactors get extended. EDF that operates eight reactors still in the UK is looking at life extending four of those reactors. Mm -hmm. um, they're going to have to do some buying. The French are not exactly all that well covered in uranium right now. They've had problems in Niger. Um, production in Canada is, is missing. I think we'll hear more about that in the next couple of days. They're looking for pounds in Mongolia. They're setting up an ISR project there. Late decade, if everything goes well, will be some production. They're establishing themselves in Uzbekistan, which also just news today, Uzbekistan guiding down their production goals. They were planning to double production by 2030, which would be an additional seven, eight, nine million pounds per year by then. They revised that down to a 50% increase. So there's there's three, four, five million pounds a year that the market was expecting in 2029, 2030 that's not going to be there. It just keeps compounding, Tom. Um, life extensions, even restarts, United States looking at giving a, a 1.5 billion in funding to restart the Palisades nuclear power, uh, power plant in Michigan. Mm -hmm. We've never restarted a reactor here. It's never happened. Mm -hmm. um, life extending pickering in Canada. It's going to take some time to do the refurbishments, but they're putting up the funding to do it. Mm -hmm. It's it's de-risked across the board on the demand side. So uh, it's going to be pretty robust in demand. And yeah, it's it should be an interesting couple of years ahead of us for sure. Absolutely. And that's an important list of 
I think this encouraging sentiment across the industry that's changing to, you know, changing their tune on accepting nuclear energy and at least extending, if not refurbishing and putting back into service, a lot of these other plants. One of the other points I think we need to hit based on the demand side is the utilities that already have contracts in place flexing up on their delivery. So how does that work and how does that affect the market as well? So in in previous years, so let's say mid-2000s, or honestly, this has happened ever since it's been a seller's market or buyer's, buyer's market. So ever since we've seen the price start to decline, let's say post-Fukushima, all through the 2000s, leading up until maybe kind of the, maybe 2020, and it started to shift. The Basically, the dynamics of the long-term contracts that are signed. And this long-term contracts are where utilities procure most almost 90% of their their needs. The spot market is not where you go for your primary fuel needs. It's where you go for short-term needs. Most of the time, utilities will sign contracts that'll last from three years to 10 years directly with the producer and receive that material out into the future. And they'll sign these contracts years ahead of when they need them. That's typically how the industry operates. So during this buyer's market, the contracts had elements to them that that the buyers wanted, and that was uh, largely flex provisions. Also, um, as much of the contract as possible, they could get at a fixed price. They would, although that was less of a concern in a declining environment, right? Because you wouldn't want to sign fully fixed at seventy bucks, thinking it was going to forty. But if you signed a, a contract sort of near the bottom, you had flex provisions. You had partially fixed, partially spot reference, and what that means is at the time of delivery, when you pay. Uh, volume volume influenced, part of that would be reference to the market, part of that in the spot market price at the time of delivery, and part of it would be a fixed price that, that you decided when you signed the contract. The provision in these contracts was that you as the utility, as the buyer, had the option to flex up or down the amount of material you received. And in some cases, you could even flex on the delivery timing. So you could require that that material be sent to you sooner or you could require that you wanted sometimes up to 20% more material than you originally signed in that contract. So a lot of these contracts with pretty much everyone in the industry were signed late 2018s. Now we've seen the price rise so much that if you're a utility, you've got 500,000 pounds that you are expecting delivering on this year from Cameco, for example, and you signed that contract three years ago and the fixed price of the contract is 45 bucks, and the market reference price is 104, mm -hmm. you're going to flex up all day long because part of that material is still priced less than 50% of what it is in the spot market now. Mm -hmm. So absolutely everyone that has had uh, flex provisions in their contracts has been flexing up on the producers. And this is happening to Cameco and Arano and Uranium One and uh, and the Chinese utilities and Kazatomprom. Every everybody who has signed contracts in the past with flex provisions is being flexed up on, and what that is effectively doing is it's drawing down producer inventory, and it's tightening the short and mid term in the in the term market. So pounds that the producers previously would have had allocated, let's say, for deliveries next year or the year prior, if they're being flexed on for their deliveries now, those that material is coming out of the market. So primary producers have been buying in the spot market. The biggest producers in the world are buyers. They're actually in the market competing with their customers. 
That's how tight this market is. And some of that had to do with Sprott's buying. Sprott really, um, they pulled a lot of material out of carry traders' hands. And so carry traders that had were holding pounds to deliver out of the future, they sold this brought in a backwardated market. Then they went and signed a contract, a midterm contract with Xadam Prom to cover. And so that tightened the, the midterm immensely. Then you have all of these flexed up contracts. And all of a sudden, everybody is not necessarily short, but they're constrained in their supply. And I think it's unbelievably profound that the big producers of the world, that the nuclear utilities of the world are relying upon for production are in the market competing with them. That's that's the market we're in right now. And I don't see uh, what what brings us out of this particular dynamic in the, in the short term. Mm-hmm. One other piece I wanted to talk about with you there, Justin, is China's effect on the market as well. You know, it seems like they have a large fleet of reactors slated for construction, but do they also have you know, any meaningful supply that comes out of there? And if not, where do they get it? So they don't have a lot of in-situ resources in China, despite the the gigantic um, geographical footprint of the country. They just don't have a very uranium-rich land base. And they've done what they can to explore for uranium. We've heard that they've drilled extremely, extremely deeply trying to access uranium deposits. They get a few million pounds uh, out of the country every year, but it's nowhere near what they need, right? So currently, let me see, I'm going to bring up the numbers in the background here. They currently have, I think it's 52, 55 gigawatts of nuclear. So let's see, what is that? 55 gigawatts. Let me do some math here. I think that's about 25 million pounds of uranium per year off the top of my head. They have 26 reactors under construction currently right now, just in China. A lot of those reactors, about half of those are going to hit the grid in the next three to four years. So they've always had this plan of one third, one third, one third. So a third of their production would be in country, which they never hit, but that's just a stated goal for whatever reason. A third would come from projects that they um, acquire internationally and then a third would come from actual contracting with other producers. So China, interestingly enough, I think is the most curious aspect of this entire industry and this investment because they hold the most inventory. They hold probably north of 500 million pounds of U-308 equivalent across the fuel cycle. In U-308, you have six enriched uranium fabricated fuel. They're establishing their own enrichment and conversion capacity. They have some already. They're building out more. They're going to need it. Um, but they don't have a lot of U-308. So in in recent years, you know, in, in the last decade plus, they've established projects in Namibia. They've got uh, uh, some 20% ownership of Paladin's Langer Heinrich. They're operating the Husab mine. Um, they have uh, a stake in Rossing, if I recall. They've got a stake in fission uranium in Canada. Who knows when uranium will come out of the ground there. But what they've been doing over the past 12 months, Tom, is they've been signing very, very large contracts with Kazatomprom. Two contracts with two different Chinese utilities with Kazatomprom in the last 12 months. Uh, And these contracts were so large individually that for the company doing that contracting, um, on balance, the 
value of the pounds under contract for that entity with Kazatomprom would be between 50% 200% of the book value of Kazatomprom. That's how big these contracts were. They had they needed special shareholder vote to approve the signing of these contracts. And it was one after the other. Uh, it was December of 2022. And then less than six months later, another Chinese utility, same thing, massive contracts. This should have been a big, big wake up call to the entire world, especially to the West. Uh, China is by far the biggest customer of Kazatomprom. They also have joint ventures with Kazatomprom. So really the point I'm making here is the entity that's holding the most pounds in inventory has been the most aggressive buyer in the last 18 months. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the Chinese story. They operate differently than the Western mind has a difficulty understanding this. We tend to think in capitalist terms, uh, buy low, sell high. That's pretty much what the way, the way that we think generally speaking. And, and they think in terms of planning for decades uh, for the growth and the prosperity of, of the country. Um, so they're building reactors like crazy and they're thinking in terms of decades. So um, I don't believe the Chinese are going to be sellers of inventory into the market. That's obviously the biggest flex out there. If they decide that they will, for whatever reason, then we're going to see some impact on price. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, the uh, contacts of mine in the industry that are much, much smarter than me also don't believe that's going to happen. Chinese just aren't, they don't operate in that manner. And I wouldn't be surprised if they uh, take up further ownership of international projects and or sign even more large contracts with Kazanoprom going forward. Mm -hmm. So Justin, what does this all mean in terms of ways that we're looking at playing this market? You know, what has happened to a lot of these producers, whether it's chemical, these underlying equities, you know, are they overbought? Is this market overheated? Or is this fundamental shortfall at this point still in some ways healthy for the growth and the restart of this entire industry? Well, the, like I mentioned earlier, Tom, the, the pricing of uranium here is absolutely necessary. So this is not just a one-off, uh, just because Sprott's on the scene. Um, it's not something to be faded in my personal opinion. The underlying fundamentals of the industry the growth of the industry and the supply constraints that we're dealing with now that are going to persist for years, in my personal opinion, are going to lead to increasingly uh, more pressure on the price. Mm -hmm. Would I fade the equities here? No, absolutely not. Are there going to be fits and starts along the way? A hundred percent. Are uranium equities still equities? Yes. Stocks are going to do what stocks do. You're going to see profit taking. It doesn't matter how good the, prof, the, the, the fundamentals are. When we see big runs, you're going to see profit taking. People, some people are long-term investors. Some people are traders. It makes a market all good. What I think we're going to see, and it's not even theoretical, it's because we're already seeing it, is we're going to see analyst reports coming out that are going to be imputing these prices and higher prices and showing uh, drastically increased NPVs and price targets for all of these companies. We're already starting to see that. We're starting to see research come out from PI Financial, from Canaccord, starting to bake in $100 uranium and impute that into these projects, uh, forward NPVs. And it's going to equal much higher price targets. It already is. What I think is happening right now is the industry is kind of taking a breath and saying, okay, that escalated quickly. What now? Well, what now is there's still not uranium coming into the market. Mm -hmm. So what now is a realization that $100 a pound inflation adjusted historically is not a whole lot, uh, is not very expensive. And 
uranium nuclear fuel, uh, nuclear fuel buyers for nuclear utilities, they have one job to not run out of fuel, period. That's the only thing they absolutely have to do is fuel their reactors. Mm -hmm. So um, do they love $150 a pound uranium? No. Are they happy about it? No. Um, are they uh, regretful and possibly resentful if they have to pay $200 a pound? Sure. Are they going to be happy? No. Does it affect their bottom line? Yes. In most cases, they can actually pass on those price increases to the ratepayers. And uranium itself is a small percentage, 4 to 5% of the overall operating budget of the average nuclear uh, power plant. It's pretty small. So the price can double from here. It only affects a few percentage points on their bottom line. But it does matter. But they will pay it. Uh, they have to pay it. And it isn't their job to time the market. And then you go back and you say, well, how did this happen? Why do they not all buy uranium like crazy in the late 2010s when it was so cheap? Um, why didn't they incentivize the producers, really, um, seeing the supply deficit out into the future? Why didn't they voluntarily pay a little bit more to Cameco and Arano and whoever else that had care and maintenance projects or development projects five years ago? Why didn't they do that? That's not their job. They, In fact, if they were to actually go to their manager and say, uh, hey, Bob, I can uh, call up the Russians right now and get my uranium conversion enrichment fabricated fuel on an average of $27 a pound. But, you know, I want to take one for the team and make sure the industry is healthy five years from now. So I'm going to call Cameco and sign a fixed price contract at 40 bucks. Mm -hmm. They would be fired. You, they couldn't do, have done that. So in many ways, what's happening now is sort of inevitable. Yes, there have been some uh, exogenous events. We had COVID disrupt things for a minute there. Um, we've had the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust fire up an ATM and buy 43 million pounds in the last two years. We've had the Russia Russian invasion of Ukraine, which hasn't exactly impacted supply overall, but it has uh, complicated shipping and it has impacted the way that nuclear utilities are purchasing going forward because they're avoiding business in the West with Russia. All of these things have incrementally affected the market, but really it's just the slow response rate of the industry, period, the end. That's the story. It can't happen fast. It has never been able to happen fast. That's why the chart I showed you earlier, the price goes like this and then goes like this. It just takes time. The industry can't respond fast enough. So in this particular situation, it's great to see the gear starting to turn, production start to try to come into the market, and it will incrementally year over year. But the demand is so strong and growing and, and, and so easy to model out that um, it's very clear to see that the supply deficit is going to persist. And I think that the strategic holders of inventory, we haven't seen any evidence yet that they are motivated sellers here. The opposite has been true. So everything is lined up here, Tom, in my opinion. And I think... I think we're going to see much higher prices this year. I don't have a price target for you, but it's not going to linger around 100 bucks a pound for very much longer. Well, Justin, I think that's a perfect note to end on. I think that's a good way to wrap up unless there's anything else that you'd like to mention to our listeners. Um, keep an eye on Cameco's call. I'm not sure how quickly you'll publish this interview, Tom, but their call is two days from now on Thursday, February 8th. And um, I think that they're going to have some 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 significant signaling to the market because um, I believe that they're going to show that their production missed in 2023. And uh, going forward, I think that it's not a guarantee that they're going to hit a nameplate. 
So, uh, and I think that they're going to be breathing fire, of course, because the the market is just obviously so bullish right now. So it could be a significant little event for the industry. Um, then there's obviously there's multiple catalyst potential down the road, including the Russian uranium ban, which could happen. Like I said, I'm not trading around this. I'm not betting on it. I actually don't necessarily want it to happen for the reasons I already mentioned, but mm-hmm. um, just the fundamentals of the sector, the buying of the end users, which are utilities from the primary producers of the world is the supply is insufficient and that buying alone is going to keep moving the price higher. So it's, it's, it's really cumulative, cumulatively all told a pretty simple story with a bunch of complexities that all have minor influences, but the story is really simple. Nuclear is, uh, it's, it's a growing industry and supply is going to take time to respond. So we expect higher prices persist for, for multiple years from here. Mm-hmm. And again, not to say that there aren't fits and starts in there, but as you said, it's inevitable. And in a lot of ways, I think it's undeniable what this industry needs to do to be able to respond to the demand that is now looming overhead. Of course, for anybody that wants more of your work, all available at uraniuminsider.com. Excellent Twitter follow at Uranium Insider. You do a newsletter, you do your own YouTube channel, a couple different offerings, right? Yeah, we have a monthly newsletter that's uh, 40 to 50 pages that goes really deep into the into the macro. Um, we focus a lot of our energy on the physical market. We want to know exactly what is being traded and who's buying and who's selling and at what price. So we maintain a, a pretty solid network of contacts in that world and try to distill that information down to our to our membership. Uh, we do a monthly members-only webinars. Where we bring in industry execs to discuss uh, the sector and in some cases, their companies that they operate. Um, and then we have, you know, timely bulletins that we send out based on macro, you know, market moving news or company specific news. Um, and then we do daily updates. And, and oftentimes these are video forms, sometimes not. But we we have a communication with our membership on a daily basis. And, and we try to just we try to take the complexities of this market and distill it down into into what you need to know as an investor in the space. And largely that's been um, over the past couple of years is maintaining conviction despite uh, improving fundamentals all along, but the equities have not always followed uh, that. So it can be gut-wrenching at times. Sentiment can take really, really wild swings. And um, we get a lot of messages of gratitude, basically, that we have kept people in this trade during uh, periods of doubt. So um, hopefully we'll have fewer of those doubtful periods going forward here as things continue to kind of heat up here. But yeah, it's it's all we do. We've got a dedicated small team and um really, really enjoying this work right now. And I'm happy to see it being paying off for our membership currently. Yeah. Absolutely. It's great to see the success that you guys have had, not only for yourselves, but also the industry as a whole. This is something that you and I have been talking about for years. And you know, seeing the bull market in some ways, you know, just getting heated up is really encouraging. Justin, I really want to thank you for your time today and Look forward to being able to speak about this with you again. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much, Tom. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests on this show are not compensated for their appearance. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. Do not base any investment decisions on the information contained. To view our full disclaimer, please visit our website.